0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As always, our growth comes through the scriptures. You may turn simultaneously somehow to Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. How about that? If you are dealing with a paper Bible, then that may be a little bit awkward to get to three different places Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23, Mark 9, verses 30 through 32, and Luke 9, verses 43 through 45. This is a very short chapter, or a very short episode, episode 51 in the Galilean ministry. Of course, our episodes will start over again. The numbering starts over with each section. We're coming to the end of the Galilean ministry. There are only 56 episodes in the Galilean ministry. It seems like we've been in the Galilean ministry longer than Jesus was in the Galilean ministry, I think, <laughs> as far as that goes. Um, but it is the longest section, and it is really the central section of the life of Christ, is the Galilean ministry. We will move on into the last uh, Parian ministry, and uh, or the Parian ministry and the last Judean ministry, and uh, very quickly we'll be approaching the, uh, the Passion Week. Uh, just to give you the idea, uh, episode 52 is a paying of taxes episode that comes out of Matthew 17 and then uh, what follows that is in Matthew 18 as well as here uh, Mark 9 and Luke 9 there's the argument about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and it's it's unbelievable here he is in the final year and he's preparing the disciples for the cross and this is the second time now that he's been very blunt with them to say I'm going to Jerusalem I'm going to die. And, uh, the first time, uh, they didn't take it very well. In fact, Peter, uh, said, uh, you know, far be it from thee, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter gave him one of those over my dead body kind of moments and he received the get behind me, Satan response. And, uh, we dealt with that in Matthew 16. So this, uh, what we look at here this morning is the second time that, uh, the Lord has given them this plain message. But we have the uh, the paying of the taxes, the disciples are arguing about who was going to be the greatest. We have the chapter in John 7 where, the where his brothers, the brothers of Jesus, are trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem. And interestingly enough, they want him to go up there so he can make a big splash, so he can show off, so that he can uh, gather more disciples and, and have a bigger impact in his ministry. They're not even saved. What do they know about impact in a ministry? And you wonder... As unbelievers, of course, we know they're a brood of vipers. We know that they're of their father, the devil. And you wonder what the motivation was to try to get him to, um, to get to Jerusalem prematurely. Would, uh, would he somehow be disobedient to the will of the father? Would he somehow um, uh, fail in his work assignment if he was to be there uh, ahead of time? And then ultimately uh, he will leave Galilee he'll be rejected by the Samaritans the the sons of thunder will try to call down fire from heaven and there's some uh, some fun things there and uh, and the Galilean ministry will uh, come to a close so we're getting pretty close to that just uh, five more episodes here in the Galilean ministry and they're all pretty well short I think the longest one that we'll deal with well they're, they're just they're contending about greatness there's there's quite a bit in there that we'll have to deal with all right, for this morning, let's start with Matthew 17. You don't have to turn to all of them at the same time. We'll, we'll take them in, in order. We'll do Matthew first, then Mark, and then Luke, and uh, we'll handle it from there. We won't do any of that, though, without prayer. We'll sanctify our time and ask the Father to bless our time together, shall we pray? Almighty Father, uh, we have uh, begun this day already with considerable prayer, and I want to thank you for that and for our... Our time this morning in praying for pastors and churches around this country, for the, the ladies' prayer session, which has just now come to a close, and now here we are again. Father, we thank you that the throne of grace is uh, it's always open; it never closes; it's always available. And and here we are. Father, we're asking at this time for distractions to be set aside, for uh, humility to receive the word implanted. And Father, we uh, ask that the impact of this message might be made clear to each one of us, not only today. But in the days to come, as we're called upon to make application. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Matthew 17. Here, giving you an idea. This is how I study typically. This is one of my workspaces that I open up. And you, it's just one little button on my toolbar. It's this button right here. And it only takes a few moments. How long does it take for you to open up a Bible and flip and get to the passage you're looking for and then to open up another Bible and flip and open to the passage you're looking for and then get a third Bible out and flip and get to the passage you're looking for. And then while you're at it, going in and getting three Greek testaments as well and and so forth. So Anyway, this is a layout that I use. I call it my synoptic gospel layout. Uh, So I've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke in those three columns. The New American Standard across the top row, the Nestle 27 edition across the bottom row and the ability to, to scan across parallel text like we do in the uh, Synoptic Gospel. So when we read in Matthew 17, and while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. And that's the betrayal aspect of what we've studied many times before, with Paraditimi, the uh, betrayal. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. So we're going to discuss this. We're going to discuss the nature of Bible class and how do we react with a message that's not pleasant to hear. A message we don't want to hear. A message that uh, nevertheless we need to hear, whether we appreciate it or not, or even have the capacity to accept it at this time. It may be that the Lord is giving us a message that does not apply this day, but it's equipping us for something down the road. And we may not understand it until we get down the road, until down the road gets to us. And then somehow the remembrance takes place. The Holy Spirit brings to our remembrance that which he had previously uh, prepared for that. In the Mark record, very similar. From there he went out and began to go through Galilee and he did not want anyone to know about it. We'll talk about that. This was actually an attempt to uh, to remain incognito, to remain under uh, under the radar, we might say. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered, again, betrayed, into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand, we're told there in Mark, they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. See, and of course, nobody in the church age would ever sit in a Bible class and not understand a message. No, of course, it happens all the time. And we want to ask ourselves, all right, now, the Word of God has gone forth, especially today. The Word of God has gone forth. The empowerment of the Holy Spirit is is involved in the communication gift of the one speaking, as well as in the reception. Because the Holy Spirit is active in the communicator. The Holy Spirit is active in the, in the hearer. Combining spiritual with spiritual, we're told. And so we have the, uh, the working of the Holy Spirit with our human spirit to receive spiritual truth. When I do not understand it, why is that? What's preventing that? We'll have to uh, consider some of the issues there. All right, and then the parallel text in Luke. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. And that's uh, the, the follow-up to the casting out of that demon. Uh, we dealt with that over the past couple of weeks. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, He said to his disciples, what a context. The crowds, of course, get wrapped up in the the miracle. You know, they get all excited about the things going on, you know, and that's what energizes people today. That's kind of American Christianity. Let's get excited about what's going on, the events, the activities, the happenings. Meanwhile, of course, there's teaching going on, and that doesn't quite get the same uh, excitement. So while everyone was marveling at what he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. And I love that idiom. We have the same idiom today. We want something to sink in. We want it to sink into our ears. And it may be the circumstances or the nature of a difficult message that simply can't be listened to like normal messages or other messages or a basic standard Bible class. There may be something very focused and very particular about a pivotal message at a pivotal time where it has to sink in. And we'll, uh, we'll examine the vocabulary on that here. I think I did a study on the vocabulary. That it, it does have to sink in. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. Again, betrayal. All three Gospels use the betrayal terminology. But they did not understand the statement and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, we're told there in Luke 9.45. And they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Alright, so we've just read all three accounts there. It's only a couple of verses, or three verses in each. Two verses in Matthew, three verses in Mark, and two, three verses there in Luke. So it's, it's a pretty short text. I want to get three things out of it, though. Let's start with Matthew. The pending work of the cross was a difficult message to communicate. Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. The pending work of the cross was a difficult message to communicate. And you wonder, difficult to listen to or difficult to speak? You know, or both. I think obviously the disciples needed to hear it two or three different times. And even then they still weren't figuring it out. For Peter and John, they finally caught on when they were standing there in the empty tomb. <laughs> they had that foot race to get there and, and John stops at the door and is peeking in and Peter just—he was a little bit slower. He was older and he was a little bit slower, but he finally caught up and he got there and he didn't stop at the edge like John did. He just barged on in. That's kind of Peter's personality anyway. Just storm on in and get in the middle of everything. And he's standing there in the empty tomb and they see the cloth and it's folded there and they finally we told that they believed, they understood and they believed. So we'll have some, uh, we'll obviously deal with that when we get to that point. Difficult message, difficult to communicate, difficult for them to listen to and perhaps even difficult for him to teach. Because each and every time he taught it. Was a, it was a faith test? It was a test in his humanity for him to accept. Yes, this is the father's will. This is What I'm going to do. And the closer you come to what it's going to be, you realize that that test becomes that much more uh, involved. All right. Now, the content is simple enough. As we read it again here in Matthew, the content is simple enough. It's straightforward. You know, you can't get much more blunt. The son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. All right. Any questions? (laughs) Betrayal will happen. And they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. The content was simple enough. It's like the gospel message. How simple is the gospel? Oh, it's pretty simple. I say it's one of the simplest messages in the history of mankind. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And you want to know why it's simple? simple so that you know anyone can listen that's right you know if you if you start making it complicated then there's going to be some folks that you know aren't going to grasp the concept and how complicated do you want to make it you know you could make it as tricky and only the most brilliant minds on earth would, would apprehend it what 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 would the purpose of that be or you make it simple And if it is indeed provision for the lost realm of humanity, it has to be simple. The content is simple enough. But what is it that hinders even a simple message from being accepted? Such as this message here, or such as the gospel. So the gospel is simple. Who wouldn't believe that? Right? I think that was Stan's reaction when he he was presented with the gospel. Well, Of course, how simple? Who wouldn't believe that? (laughs) <laughs> well, billions of people across the planet don't believe that. That's the the sad, uh, tragic consequence. The difficulty comes in accepting it. It comes in accepting it. I want to key in on these words here, this phrase, they were deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved. We've got a verb with an adverb that intensifies it. And... Uh, also, I think it's kind of interesting. Lupeo is a verb. It's a sadness verb. Number 3076. And then the adverb Sforda, number 4970, which is an intensifier. It speaks of, of the, the depths or the extent or the, um, the intensity of the activity. And wouldn't you know it, lupeo happens to be one of the verbs that's pretty common. Uh, Sforida is not all that common. It doesn't show up very many places but where it does show up frequently enough interestingly enough three times Matthew combines the terms so we encounter it here in Matthew seventeen twenty-three, but we'll see it again in chapter 18 we'll see it again in chapter 26 over in chapter 18 next chapter over in verse 31 and of course this is now in the midst of a a parable, but at least you can, get the, uh, you can get the gist of it. I've been looking forward to this one here because this is where Peter's trying to learn about forgiveness. And he's trying, he's hoping, he's hoping that there's limits, <laughs> right? That, you know, seven times, you know, and you wonder what was, uh, what was going on with Peter. Was there somebody he'd already forgiven seven times and he was hoping the Lord would give him permission to just write it off now and say, okay, that's it. You've, you've gone the extra mile. And Jesus says, oh, no, no, 70 times 7. And then Christ teaches this parable here about a slave and couldn't repay his debts. And he had this massive, unbelievable debt. And yet he was forgiven. But then that slave turns to a fellow slave who owes him just a pittance. Something that is absolutely minuscule. It would be like being forgiven of of a billion dollars and and then turning to your neighbor who owes you five bucks or something. And you think, goodness... You, can you can you possibly develop a sense of proportion here and uh, this slave just doesn't have it so even though he'd been uh, for uh, forgiven the you see the amount there in verse 24 10,000 talents and then this smaller amount there uh, 100 denarii in verse 28 there's just no comparison and yet he uh, seizes this other slave and begins to choke him saying pay back what you owe and in Anyway, you're, you're familiar with the story, and we've gone through it before, we'll go through it again. But then notice the reaction here. His fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling, went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves, and these are just observers, fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. Same exact terminology, same verb, same adverb. All right. I don't know if it's the same tense or not, but it doesn't matter. It's the same verb and it's the same adverb. So the fellow slaves were deeply grieved. Now, why were they grieved? Well, they saw something that, in their norms and standards, was just unthinkable to their to their way uh, to their universe, their view of right and wrong, to their view of of how things ought to be. This just doesn't make any sense. How could you be forgiven of a massive amount and then be so? So uh, legalistic and so vindictive and so evil for this trivial amount. To them, it's unthinkable. And like I say, we're going to go into this when we get to this point in the life of Christ ministry. And we'll show you that this, this whole parable is designed to communicate our attitude towards one another with the understanding that we've been forgiven at the point of our salvation, of course. We've been forgiven an infinite, uncountable sum. And Christ died for that, un, you know, that uncountable eternal sum. And when we uh, when we can't forgive our fellow slaves, our when we can't show forgiveness towards one another, what a what a reflection is that of our lack of grace and our lack of uh, appreciation. So, I, I like the way that this text kind of brings it into focus there, and the the idea of now the disciples being deeply grieved is is. Put in that same language as these slaves being deeply grieved. These slaves are viewing something that is just grating to them. Just absolutely unthinkable and can't be right. And there's no way. It's the same thinking of the disciples here. It can't be right. There's no way. It's unthinkable. <coughs> Jesus is going to die? No. And they are just as offended at his message there that he's going to be betrayed and die and raise again that these, they're just as offended over that as these slaves are at the, the wickedness of this fellow here in the parable. Okay, then the other example in Matthew is back in chapter 26. <coughs> Again, it's in the context of a betrayal message, even on the night in which he was betrayed. So he spent up to a year now, almost a year, giving them the same message. So when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve disciples. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Being deeply grieved, they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. See, the grieving, you wonder, did the grieving ever stop? From From the time he first told them, and, and you start to wonder, because of that, because of the Peter and the foot and mouth incident, right? You know, where he said, far be it, this will never happen from you. And he said, get behind me, Satan. So with, with that happening from the first time, now the second time, now they're afraid to even ask. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to ask. You know, not even, not even speak first, think last, Peter. He's keeping his mouth shut. And, unfortunately, though, look what it produces. This, this grieving, this deeply grieving attitude. And so we see, so have they been grieving the whole year? What have they been doing? You know, we know they're arguing about greatness. And every time they have these greatness arguments, and then he's telling them about the cross. So they began to be deeply grieved, and each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. All right, And even Judas, in <laughs> verse 25, and he is the one. Oh, surely not I, Lord. What an actor. All right. That's what we have in Matthew. Let's go over to Mark now and look at the details in Mark. Mark 9. Mark chapter 9, 30-32. We already read the verses. This series of messages. See, I don't think it was just a single shot. Because it took place during a tour. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee and he was teaching and he was telling. I think we've got a a continuous action here and uh, this was a series of messages that took place as they traveled. If you're going from place to place throughout Galilee, you're going from place to place and you've got time. You've got time for all sorts of messages in different venues so point two, as we look at Mark's record, this series of messages was delivered during an incognito tour of Galilee, trying to uh, stay unknown, trying to stay uh, private during this time. I think that gives us some uh, some principles as well in terms of the ministry, in terms of uh, different things. Think there's uh, obviously a very public venue of a Sunday morning with a whole congregation assembled and so forth, but then there may come difficult testings. There may come some uh, some pretty intense circumstances of, of suffering or undeserved suffering or affliction or whatever else is going on, and it may be the pastor says, "You know what? Let's let's get out of the limelight. Let's get out of. Let's have uh, a more intimate setting." Let's come together for prayer with deacons or with um, elders, older believers. We're going to have to deal with some unpleasant content. We're going to have to deal with some, uh, some matters here. And this is what's going on. Now, under this... We've got a neat pairing here with Gnosko and and We'll look at this this pairing. It's like a play on words that Mark uses. So Jesus didn't want anyone to know, Gnosko, didn't want anyone to know about his Galilee itinerary. If this was, uh, if this was written in modern times, we'd say um, he, he turned off his cell phone and uh, <laughs> didn't check his email. He didn't want anyone to know about his Galilee itinerary. Verse 30 where it says, He did not want anyone to know Ginosko. Keeping the knowledge of his schedule, his itinerary, the destinations, wherever it was throughout Galilee. We've we've done the uh, geography studies on this. There's a pretty expansive region, not, not only on the coast by the Sea of Galilee, but up in the hills and over towards the west and the south and so forth. And so wherever it was he was going here, throughout Galilee we're told, he wanted to keep it secret. And yet, in, a, in an interesting play on words here, we have a combination here where you have Gnosko in verse 30. He doesn't want anyone to know. And, and he's trying to keep the population at large ignorant. He's trying to keep his his opponents ignorant. Obviously, the the, the opposition has grown and grown and grown and grown. We've already seen where the, the Pharisees are accusing him of demonism. They're, they're accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. We see that there's hostility going on. While he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, they were arguing with the disciples. And they were actually surprised to see Jesus come back. That makes me wonder what kind of ambush they had set for him, you know. Did they have some kind of uh, abduction plan? Did they have some kind of, uh, you know, was there uh, a, uh, an accident that was supposed to befall him on the road? Because when he came back, they were shocked. It was one of those "What are you doing here?" moments, kind of thing. So, with the uh, growing intensity, and and you know, clearly, for for him to get killed here would be pretty bad, right? He's got to stay alive. He's got to obey the Father. He has to he has to survive to get to the cross to offer up his soul to be obedient there. So, the uh, the secrecy here I find to be interesting, and these are the Kind of studies, I think, uh, was mentioned last night. If we've got persecution coming up, if we've got dark days ahead for this country and hostility and and everything else, um, I think we need to start to develop the uh, principles of how to function the Christian way of life with more of a a, uh, circumspect, uh, defensive, secretive, uh, protective type of... uh, Type of uh, activity. We need to start learning now from places in China and elsewhere where they're already underground. Start to prepare for those things. All right, so we have a match. He wants to keep the opponents ignorant. And instead, what he finds is, is that his disciples are the ones that are ignorant. All right, they're ignorant of his message. He's trying to keep the opponents ignorant. And instead, he discovers that his disciples are the ignorant ones. The disciples were ignorant of his message. And I think with the imperfect of Agnoeo that we see there in verse 50 again, I'm sorry, in verse 32, 50 is your Strong's Index Concordance number if you want to do a a word study on Agnoeo. You know, noose is the mind and noeo is a thinking term and um, you put the... uh, it's like from Gnosko, and you put the alpha in front of it to negate it. it, it anybody you encounter today that tells you they're, they're uh, an atheist, right? Just tell them, that's okay, I don't believe in atheists. All right. Or if they're, at least if they're honest about it, they'll have to tell you, well, I'm an agnostic. That tends to be their... If they're more sophisticated about their atheism, they'll, they'll try to um, come up with an agnosticism and say, well, I'm, I'm agnostic. Which means, I don't know, I can't know, no one can know. It's unknowable. All right. This is where agnostic comes from. Agno-o. It means ignorant. A synonym for agnostic is ignorant. So, next time someone looks you in the eye and tells you that they're agnostic, say, Oh, I'm sorry, you're so ignorant. Alright. Allow me to remedy your ignorance. They probably won't like that, but you have the opportunity to let them know. Well, just tell them, you know, if you're an agnostic, it comes from the Greek agnoeo, and we can fix that. Right? I had a first sergeant who used to tell me that all the time. He said, we can fix ignorance. We can't fix stupid, but we can fix ignorance. (laughs) All right. So, he's trying to keep the uh, opposition ignorant in verse 30. He did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples. See, this was a message. He had to have privacy. He had to have time set aside. He couldn't be hounded by all these people that wanted, you know, a demon cast out or a healing or some kind of thing. You know, there's all these unceasing demands. He needs the time to focus with these disciples. And He was teaching. He was telling. I think we've got continuous action throughout here. The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men they will kill him when he has been killed he will rise three days later but they did not understand this statement so even though distractions are set aside even though they've got time they've got privacy everything seems to be lined up and he can he can deal with them they uh they remain ignorant and then again we're told they were afraid to ask him now This is the third observation we make here. The disciples' fear prevented them from remedying their their ignorance. The disciples' fear prevented them from remedying their ignorance. Oh, I cannot stress this enough. They were afraid. This isn't the the reverence. This isn't the godly fear, the reverence, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom. No, this is the the scared kind of fear, the carnal kind of fear. They were were scared. This isn't reverence that we're supposed to fear the Lord. This is the wrong kind of fear. And what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of Jesus? Were they afraid of... uh, the the get thee behind me Satan rebuke possibly since that's what had happened in the previous uh, in the previous uh, time that he had gone into this this mode and uh, or were they afraid of knowing the truth see you know it, it comes down to any any message. The, the the acknowledgement of the facts is one thing. The idea of knowledge is one thing. But to truly accept by faith the uh, the reality of what's being presented there is something else. And uh, if they're not willing to accept it, if they are afraid of what the answer might be, then it's, you're best off just not asking the question in the first place. See. You know, there were countless times, you know, um, in the jail with different inmates, and different crimes that are committed, some of the most horrible, horrible crimes that are committed, um, and uh, abuse of children and whatever else. And And in a lot of cases, people knew or should have known, but they didn't want to know. And they were afraid. They were afraid to ask the questions. They were afraid to confirm it. And so they would rather live in a fantasy world of denial and, and claim and ignorance. You know, maybe it was uh, the, the father that was the criminal and the, the mother just turned a blind eye, see. And, and beyond child abuse, there, uh, there's, uh, you know, adultery, other things. You know, the husband's having an affair and the wife suspects it or thinks it's happening, but doesn't want doesn't to know it, doesn't want to believe that it's happening. And so, nope, nope, close it out. Don't even want to think about that, okay? This this is a common human deal. And so here they are, and this is a subject they they really don't want to go there. And some of them have actually suffered. Some of them have, they've lost their, uh, Peter had that significant fishing business, the conglomeration with all the different ships and the different things, and at one point, he even starts to paddle a little bit. says, we've left everything for you. What have you really left? You know, you think you've left. And uh, this idea that, that they're following after this guy and he's going to die. They're going to reject him. Because, remember, they've got this whole thing of kingdom in their, in their mind. They're looking to break the bonds of Rome. They're looking to establish the Davidic throne. They're looking to, they've got all these wonderful Second Advent prophecies in the Old Testament. And those are good prophecies. Don't get me wrong. they are great things to look forward to. But the cross has to precede the crown. And, and they don't want to go there. So we find this fear. And this is the thing. We want to know if, um, if I don't understand a message, why don't I understand a message? Why don't I understand a message? And, uh, and we'll talk about that. If... if um, If I'm in a Bible class and a message comes out and and it's just, there it goes over my head. What was that all about? And then I'm driving home and my wife says, wow, wasn't that a powerful message? (laughs) What? You understood that? What was going on? (laughs) Yeah. Then you ask, well, wait a minute. What did you glean out of that? Because I didn't glean anything out of it. And figure it out. That was always the neatest thing. When, uh, of course, I don't sit with my wife anymore. But we would sit together when Ralph was a pastor. We'd sit together. And we're taking notes, and and uh, you know, yeah, you look over there, and, and you see, you know, what's she writing down? <laughs> and it seems to be about me, <laughs> right? Oh, I was supposed to pay attention. Ralph was talking about leadership. I guess that was for me. What? I better. All right. So I write it down in my notebook. Okay. But see, this is how it comes together. And if uh, if it's supposed to apply to you and you're, you're just not grasping it now, it could be some other things, too. It could be because you're not yet ready. And it could be one of those back burner issues where you're being prepared for something down the road. And so you accept it. You say, all right, this is the word of God. And you'll put it together with other scriptures. You search the scriptures diligently, see if they're so. And you say, well, you know what? It doesn't apply right now, but it probably will. You know, you got a teenager in the class, and you're teaching the doctrine of marriage. Well, <laughs> they're not getting married this week, but down the road it's going to be applicable. So you stash it away. The one thing you don't want to do is have a fear of finding out the truth. And and we see it in, the, in these all three of these accounts: the fear to ask a question. They were afraid to ask him, and that's you got to kill that. You got to stop that immediately. We shouldn't be afraid of anything. Uh, and that's why we have nothing to fear. in our In our um, in our hermeneutical tradition, we have nothing to fear. In our doctrinal statement, we've got nothing to fear. I'm not afraid of anything. If someone comes to me and says, "Well, you know, I'm going to challenge your theology. I'm going to challenge your pre-tribulational, premillennial dispensational approach." All right, challenge what you want. I'm not afraid of anything, but show me the Scriptures. Show me the Scriptures. Because if you show me the Scriptures, I have to believe the Scriptures. And if there's aspects of the Scriptures I haven't considered, I better consider them. But I'm not afraid of anything. You know, if a new manuscript shows up, is that going to scare me? They made that big deal about the Gospel of Judas last year. Right? Ooh, this great discovery. Does that scare me? No. If it's a phony manuscript, great. It's a phony manuscript. If it's a true manuscript, well, let's look. I'm not afraid of anything. If God wrote it, I'm accountable. I'm not afraid of anything. So, we can... We should never be afraid to ask these kind of questions. All right, now let's get to Luke. Like I say, this is a short message. There's only two verses here. Let's get over to Luke. Luke 9, 44 and 45. I think we've got to get over our fear. And... At least to ask the question. You may not get the answer and you may not sink in for some time. It may take years before it sinks into your ears and finally becomes real. But don't be afraid to ask the question in the first place. (coughs) I think this text, along with the one we studied recently where Christ said, who do the people think I am and who do you think I am kind of thing. These were the passages that really hit home to me that caused us to start our Wednesday night practice of questions and answers. Where on Wednesday night, before the class begins, we take the first 10 minutes, the first 15 minutes, and we open up the floor for questions and answers. And uh, and we follow up. If there was something in Psalm 119, Sunday morning, that just didn't make any sense, well, ask about it. If there was something on Wednesday morning that didn't make any sense, ask about it. Or you heard... Somebody on the radio, you heard R.C. Sproul or somebody going off into some kind of weird thing? Ask about it. All right? You were listening to Bible Answer Man and you weren't exactly dazzled with his answers? Ask about it. I'd much rather we work it out and we. Come up with it, and if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, but we can at least look at it and we'll research and we'll we'll search the Scriptures and see if these things are so. I don't want to be afraid of asking a question, and I don't want to be deeply grieved for a period of time because I'm not asking the question. All right. This series of messages required time to sink in. This series of messages required time to sink in. Again, as we read it in verses 44 and 45, Let these words sink into your ears. Let them sink into your ears. And, uh, you know, anytime you have the word let, I like the imperatives that begin with let. And a lot of times they're passive imperatives or a lot of times they're simply third-person imperatives. But when an imperative begins with the word let... To me, it's a humility test. It's a gut check. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a volitional opportunity to either allow the Word of God to do its work or to insist on what you want to do. Alright? As I say, oftentimes they're passive imperatives, sometimes they're third-person imperatives, but you're supposed to make application of it. Let... Let these words sink into your ears. Let. It's a great English word. Let. Allow. Don't stop it. Don't hinder it. Okay? That's what it comes down to. Because you can hinder it. You can stop it. You can uh, take action to prevent something from, from taking place there. And that's, that becomes the key then. How do I obey a passive imperative? Well, effectively, you just let it happen. Right? Because it's not up to you. The Word of God has gone forth. It will accomplish its purpose. It will not return void. It will accomplish that for which the Father said it. The Word is an active agent. Let it do its work. Let the Word of Christ dwell richly within you. Right? Let it. What do you have to do to make that happen? There's nothing you can do to make it happen, but you have to let it happen. And if you let it happen, it will happen. Is this making any sense this morning? See, we like the active imperatives, or we don't. <laughs> Maybe we don't like the active imperatives. Active imperatives like the law commands or the grace commands. Active voice. Pray without ceasing. Okay, there's a command. And If I'm going to obey that command, then I've got I to pray. I've got to do it. Active commands, i got to do it. But passive commands, I'm not doing it. See? A lot of times I use punching for my illustrations. Am I too violent when I do that? I could use kissing instead. That would work. That's more romantic anyway. So you've got a husband and wife in the audience, and you say, "See, I only have one husband and wife here this morning. I'll have to pick on the Schmitz. Right? So if I tell Evelyn to kiss Emil, that's an imperative. And I say, kiss your husband. That's an imperative. It's an active voice imperative. And for her to obey that, she has to do something. Okay? Now, if I make it a passive voice imperative, if I order Emil to be kissed, be kissed, or let Evelyn kiss you, right? It's a passive imperative. Let her kiss you. Now, does he have to do anything to obey a passive imperative? No. He could just sit there like a bump on a log. He doesn't have to do anything. However, he must let it happen. Which means he has to make sure that he doesn't prevent it, or doesn't hinder it, or doesn't, you know, run. (laughs) You know, you could do things to avoid, or run, or block, or hide, or whatever you're going to do, okay? What I'm trying to say is, when you have a passive imperative, or a let, third person imperative type, simply don't hinder it. Don't run from it. Don't avoid it. Volitionally agree to it. And allow for the Father's work to be accomplished. Let it. So that's what we have here. Let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. It it goes along with he that has an ear, let him hear, and, and things. You've got to be able to volitionally accept. A message as it goes forth. Now, we have an interesting phrase in verse 45. The disciples' ignorance is described as a deliberate concealment. The disciples' ignorance is described as a deliberate concealment. In verse 45, they did not understand this statement and it was concealed from them. It was concealed from them. The disciples' ignorance is described as a deliberate concealment. What I mean by deliberate is that we have a participle here. In fact, it's a paraphrastic participle. We have a description of this which itself contains a purpose clause. And anything that has a purpose as uh, reflected by a purpose clause, anything that has a purpose is deliberate. The disciples' ignorance is described as a deliberate concealment. But we're told in verse 45, they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them. It was continuously a having-been-concealed statement. That's the nature of this. In fact, Cliff and Bob very recently have been introduced to paraphrastic participles, and here we have one. So under point B, and I don't know how much of this you want to write down. Kind of a mouthful to try to write down ain paracetaluminon. But but good luck. It is a paraphrastic participle. If you don't know what that means, I'll spell it out for you. It means you've got Amy, you've got the state of being verb is. In this case it's imperfect, so it's was. Was over over a sequence of time. And then the perfect passive participle. From paracalupto. <coughs> The paraphrastic participle, if you just want to write down the short version of this point, the participle, does not indicate the agent behind the concealment. The participle does not indicate the agent behind the concealment. In other words, who was doing the concealing? We don't know. This text does not say. The text describes the statement as a having been concealed statement but does not indicate the agent of who did the concealing. Again, it is the, of, it is the imperfect of amy, ain, plus the perfect passive participle from paracalupto. That's what makes this here periphrastic. Now, paracalupto is a hapax It only occurs here in the New Testament, so you don't get... Uh, a lot of help from other passages to get a flavor for paracalypto. You've got some secular Greek literature. You've got some extra biblical literature, some examples there. We understand apocalypto to unveil. An apocalypse, apocalypsis is an unveiling, is a revelation. If you are unveiling, you are apakalouptoing. But here we have parakaloupto, and, uh, and rather than unveiling, you're veiling, you are concealing. And that's, uh, so that's what we have there. Again, it's 3871, but good luck on your word study. It's this verse. Your New Testament word study is this verse. It only occurs here. I think, though, that we have a good uh, sampling of, of um, extra-biblical literature from Paracalupto. It is referenced by Plato, by Plutarch, in the Septuagint, by Philo, by Justinian, by Tatian, Athenagoras. So there's a wide sampling of secular Greek writers that make use of it, meaning to hide or to conceal. Like we said, the opposite of Apocalypto to unveil. Here you're veiling. Uh, example, the Septuagint is used in Ezekiel 22.26. Um, Philo uses it for hiding the truth for concealing the aletheon the truth a couple of other examples there as I mentioned Justinius has a couple of uses and there's a fairly lengthy article I believe in Blaster Brunner and Funk where he goes into the idea of krupto and the idea of of, uh, calupto and the other ways by which you can conceal something Ezekiel twenty two twenty six, if you might remember from our Ezekiel series, for priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things, they have made no distinction between the holy and the profane, and they have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean, and they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths. That's paracalupto. They hide, they paracalupto, they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. So there's a subtuagent use here. So when we read that in verse 45 here, they did not understand this statement and it was concealed from them, The it refers to the statement, the statement, the message, the content of what he was communicating was continuously a having been concealed statement, a having been concealed message. So we're left to ask who concealed it. And why? And if it was concealed, why was it concealed? And if it was concealed, why was the Lord speaking it? See, in uh, my military police career, I was uh, briefed on a number of uh, secret and top secret uh, projects. I had a top secret security clearance. And uh, in my time, I was briefed on a number of top secret projects. Matters that pertain to the military units and so forth that I was attached to. Now, am I going to tell you about them? (laughs) No. Even though I'm pretty well suspect that 16 years later and 18 years later, there's evidently now no longer any secret value to any of it. But I don't care. It doesn't matter. I swore an oath. It's top secret. I can't talk about it. All right. So, if this is a message that has been concealed, then why is he delivering it? All right. And again, we don't know the agent of the concealment. And I think we'll we'll come to a conclusion about that here in a moment. But the concealment has a purpose clause. So, simply under point B, understand... That uh, it's concealed, but we do not, uh, the the text does not indicate the agent behind the concealment. Thirdly, point C, the purpose clause for the participle. Why was it concealed? They did not understand the statement for it was concealed or it had been concealed. It was concealed. I'd like to draw that out. It continuously was a having been concealed statement. It's like, by grace you are a having-been-saved-one. Paraphrastic participle. By grace you continuously are having-been-saved-ones. So, uh, this statement continuously was a having-been-concealed statement. So that they might not or would not perceive it. The purpose clause for the participle stress is a designed lack of perception. By design. A designed lack of perception. Hmm. You have there hina me I stone tie You got the aorist middle subjunctive of Iistana. Again, hapax. It only occurs here in the New Testament. Back-to-back examples of unique terminology. From paracalupto that only occurs here in the New Testament, it was hidden from them, to ostanaamai that uh, they might not perceive. Again, unique vocabulary. Eris middle subjunctive. Subjunctive is the mood of potential. It's the mood of purpose, as in the case here, purpose clause. So that they might not perceive. This is why it was concealed. Now a designed lack of perception. A designed lack of perception. Um, There's a reason for it. God does all things according to the counsel of his own will. He does everything for his purpose. He does everything in a manner consistent with his purpose for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And this concealment has a purpose. The purpose is a lack of perception. Why would God design a lack of perception? And then communicate it. Alright. And this is what we close with. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. And, that's Proverbs 25 two. And to reserve its unfolding until the proper time. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, Proverbs 25, 2, and to reserve its unfolding until the proper time. And for this, we've got a slew of scriptures, and I may run out of time before we get to these. Although this is my lazy week. I'm only preaching twice this week, so I can go long. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Gary was ready to cite that verse 20 minutes ago. Ephesians 3, verse 5, verse 9, and verse 10. And then 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. I turn to 1 Peter 1 so often, you guys are probably tired of looking at it. But 1 Peter 1, verses 10 through 12. See, the designed lack of perception was not designed... To be eternally unknown. If God wanted something eternally unknown, then He wouldn't have brought it up in the first place. (laughs) Why speak a message with a design lack of perception? If you wanted it eternally to be unknown. If you want something to be eternally unknown, then don't even bring it up. But if you're bringing up something that for the moment is unknown... If you bring up something that for the moment is unknowable, maybe what you're doing is planting seeds so that down the road it will become knowable when it's combined together with something else. All right. So there is a method to the madness. There is a reason why he reveals things that for the moment may not seem to make any sense. But when you combine it with something else later on, you go, oh, wow. Okay. Now, I'm going to look at all these. But before I do, I'm going to take one side trip to, uh, to Hosea. And I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Hosea chapter 11. <coughs> And in Hosea chapter 11, we read everything in the past tense. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. It is I who who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws, and I bent down and I fed them. Now, this is all in, uh, in a rebuke to the nation of Israel, of the northern kingdom, and they were about to get swept away. And it's all written in the past. It's all reviewing Israel's history, kind of like the Old Testament walkthrough. Out of Egypt, I called my son, Reviewing, of course, Moses and the Exodus and bringing the nation out of bondage and delivering them into the land of milk and honey and providing everything for them. There has never been a nation like Israel. And Hosea 11 does not appear to be in any way prophetic. There is no clue that out of Egypt I called my son is a prophecy. It appears to be a history. But you combine it with Matthew. You go to the New Testament and Joseph and Mary and Jesus have flee down into Egypt because Herod's massacring the babies. And then the angel says, all right, Herod's dead now. It's safe. You can come back. And we read in Matthew, this was to fulfill the prophecy. This was to fill the Scripture which said out of Egypt, I will call my son. And you start to realize what came here was unknowable. There was no clue that this was prophetic until you combine it with what comes next. And you compare Scripture to Scripture and the whole counsel of God's word comes together and you realize this is a prophecy. It's a history looking back, but it's also anticipating Jesus Christ in his infancy coming out of Egypt. So this again takes us now to the Scriptures I have on the screen. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter and to reserve what's unfolding until the proper time. Christ is telling them about the cross. He's telling them about His death. He's telling them about the betrayal. He's telling them about His resurrection. And they're not getting hold of it yet. But He has to deliver it now so that when it comes to fulfillment, they can put it together and go, aha, the light bulb can come on on Easter Sunday and they can go, wow. <laughs> That's what he was talking about. All right. Um, I am at the top of the hour. Let's look at these. Proverbs 25, 2, very quickly. You know, it's his business. It's his glory. Should he even be consulted by us at all, you wonder, you know. Rather than grumble about what he's hidden away, just stand in awe amazement that he's revealed anything. You know, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are His ways higher than our ways, His thoughts than our thoughts? So how in the world would He even unfold Himself to us? Yet He chose to do so. That's His nature. He's a communicator. These are the Proverbs of Solomon. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. You think about it. Kings, of course, is the pinnacle of nobility in the human experience. And so it is noble. It is human. It is is our nature. We are inquisitive. We're designed to be curious. And we're designed to explore. We're designed to seek out things. But we have to stop and realize, you know what? There's limits to what we can find out. If he has chosen to hide it, we're not going to find it. But if he's revealed it, then we're accountable. And that's what Deuteronomy 29 and 29 is about. The secret things of the Lord. Who do they belong to? They belong to the Lord. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. that we may observe all the words of this law. So if he's kept it withheld, for instance, the rapture of the church, he's kept that withheld. No man knows the day or the time. We don't know. And... For people to inquire and explore and investigate and, and, and try to read between the lines and try to calculate and deduct and know all this stuff and figure out, oh, it's going to be the Feast of Trumpets in 2014 or whatever. Well, it's human nature to explore that kind of stuff, but it's God's nature. What He's revealed belongs to Him. And I don't want to tempt the Lord, my God. I, if, if He's hidden it away, I don't spend a lot of time. I want to know, sure, I want to know. But I don't need to know. It's better that I don't know. Because if he has withheld it for a season, there's a reason why. If I knew that the rapture wasn't coming for 55 years, 6 months, 12 days, 9 hours, I, I might get a little uh, negligent in my walk. I may blow some things off and figure, well, you know, i got time. But since it could come today, I have a sense of urgency. And so the Father is pretty smart about keeping the secret thing secret and keeping us under the concept of imminency and keeping us humble before what he has revealed. All right. Oh, quickly. I said that I was going to go quickly. I'm already over. Ephesians 3.5. Ephesians 3.5. See, the mystery doctrine, the whole content of the New Testament, church-age doctrine was withheld from Old Testament believers. Why? Mystery doctrine. It was not for them. So Paul talks about the revelation that was made known to him, the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. The New Testament was withheld. Reserved. It's the Father's glory to conceal it and reserve its unfolding until the proper time. See, the Old Testament believers did not need to know that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness. All of the New Testament doctrine, they didn't need to know that. Why would they need to know the fruit of the Spirit? They didn't have the Spirit. They weren't church age believers with a permanent indwelling God, the Holy Spirit. Did church age did Old Testament saints need to know about spiritual gifts and pastors and deacons and they didn't know all that? It was reserved. To be unfolded at the proper time. Verse 9. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery. That's our stewardship. The church age is the oikonomia, dispensation of the mystery. Which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. That's reference to the Father. You've got to know who your pronouns are and who your references to God are. I heard that somewhere, I think, night before last. And you'll also notice, so that, purpose clause... There's a purpose, where there's a purpose clause, there's a purpose, there's a design, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Much of what was withheld was withheld not only for human reasons, but for angelic reasons. Much of what was withheld was withheld so as not to tip off the adversaries to what he was going to do. The Satan who thinks he's so smart and thinks he's got this great plan that can compete with the Father's plan. He doesn't even know half of what the Father's plan even is. And lastly, first Peter one. First Peter one. You know, so we don't get too hard on those Old Testament prophets. They weren't sloppy, they weren't lazy, they weren't stupid. They were just not in a position to where they needed to know. It was not it was not revealed to them. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They weren't stupid and they weren't sloppy. Careful searches, that's searching the scriptures diligently, seeing if these things are so, that's, that's scouring what has been revealed. And also inquiries. Old Testament prophets had access to the Father's throne. They could inquire of the Lord. They could go to Jehovah as his vested prophets and say, what's up? (laughs) Right? What's that all about? What's going on? What would you have of me? What does this mean? And they would get verbal answers back or not. They would get a message like Daniel received. Go your way, Daniel. It's sealed up. That's not for you to know. You'll note, seeking to know... What person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Oh, they had a problem with that. They had all these suffering passages. They didn't like them, but they had them. Then they had all these glory passages. Oh, they liked those. But how do they fit? (laughs) Suffering, glory, suffering, glory. Hmm. And so they they inquired of the Lord. They searched the scriptures and they inquired of the Lord. Seeking to determine what person or time. Person. Are there two Christs? Could have been. Right? They didn't know. Were there two Christs? Was there going to be a suffering Christ and a glorying Christ? They didn't know. That's why John the baptizer sent the messengers to the Lord. Are you the expected one or should we seek for another? Is there a second Christ on the way? They didn't know if it was two Christ or if it was two times. Is it the same Christ coming twice? Now, you and I know that because we've got a New Testament. We've got hindsight. We're in between the two advents, and quite a few things get simple in our, in our perspective. They didn't know that. They didn't know, is He coming twice? Or are the two of them on the way? Seeking to know that what person or time The Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Notice, they didn't just get no answer. They got an answer. And their answer was, it's not for you. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, church-age believers, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. He concealed it. He revealed it at the right time for His plan, for His purpose, hidden from the human realm, hidden from the angelic realm. And when the Lord talks about His death and His betrayal and His resurrection, do you think that had to be a concealed message? Why do you think that had to be a concealed message? What's that? Well, you know, we're told... If the rulers of the wisdom of God, that if the rulers of this age had understood. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's a reason why things get withheld and things get pieced together. A wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. We're told first Corinthians one or two in the early chapters of Corinthians. It was So long ago now we're to chapter 15, but um, a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood, for had they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so anyway, this, uh, this wraps up our message. I wanted to get through it in one shot. and took an extra ten minutes to do it. We'll move on next week to paying taxes. How about That's always a pleasant message. Paying taxes. And all you've got to do is just throw a hook in the water and catch a fish. Simple. You can pay your taxes. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, there might be things that we gathered here today, and I hope there were. Father, we need to make application of what you fed us, but it may be that much of what you've given us today will not sink into our ears for some time to come. That's fine. Father, we ask that we would be humble to receive it. We ask that we would be humble to apply it. And that, Father, when it does sink in, and when the understanding does happen, when the light comes on, that, Father, we would be quick to make the application and give You the praise and the glory. We trust that when necessary, these things we will be led in the truth. The Holy Spirit will guide us into all things. And we thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.